A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, producer Jonah here. And just a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation continues on our Twitter, Insta, and Facebook communities. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic. Find us at P of Charity on Twitter and at Principle of Charity on all other platforms. And this season, we're pushing you as an audience to attempt to apply the Principle of Charity in your everyday lives. So listen out for Lloyd's Principle of Charity Challenge. Here is part one of our conversation with Russ Roberts. Enjoy. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Our Principle of Charity personal challenge this week is, when in an argument with someone you have a profound disagreement with, can you re-express their position so clearly and fairly that they say, thanks, I wish I had thought of putting it this way. Emil, let's now get on with the topic of today. And what is it? Well, thanks, Lloyd. Our topic today is, should we care about inequality? Now, the sort of inequality we're focusing on today is inequality of wealth. It's become a hot topic in the West, particularly in the US, because by many metrics, inequality has increased with those at the very top amassing vastly greater wealth and those at the middle and bottom increasing only marginally or even sliding backwards. At the same time, inequality worldwide has substantially reduced due largely to the rise of Asia, particularly China, and the hundreds of millions of people who've been lifted out of poverty. But for those in the West, seeing many people's wages stagnate in purchasing power terms, whilst the top of the top get richer, creates anger and reduces the ties of solidarity that bind us together as communities and nations. But should we really care about inequality? And if so, how should we measure it? And how should we care about it and think about it? Is inequality a necessary byproduct of a capitalist society that has produced vast amounts of wealth and health over the last couple of centuries for pretty much everyone? Or more fundamentally, is it just the natural result of any community, of any description, capitalist or otherwise, made up of different people of differing talents and ambitions? In fact, what does a truly equal society look like and what trade-offs would we be asked to make to live in one? Should we be focused rather on the livelihood and opportunities of the least advantaged among us, doing whatever we can to lift their lives up, rather than being diverted by the super yachts of the super wealthy? Or is the anger at rising inequality in the West in fact important and productive? Would redistributing the wealth of the top 1% or 0.1% truly help those at the bottom or the middle? And is it more about wealth? Is it about social solidarity, the feeling that we're all in this together as a society? Then there's the question of desert. Do the rich really deserve their spoils anyhow? Sure, many of them 
maybe smart and ambitious, but they're also lucky, lucky for any gifts they may have, their genetic, cultural, and family inheritance, as well as lucky that the society we live in values those gifts. You know, there's, there's also the question of whether they've exploited their talents fairly or unfairly. Is the system rigged and have the privilege rigged it for their own benefit? Or is there movement and mobility allowing anyone with talent and ambition to succeed? There's the question of meritocracy itself. Even if we totally de-rig the playing field and provide true equality of opportunity, would this be the utopia we envisage? Or would it just allow those with the talents that society values to fly with many others to be left behind? Meritocracy was, in fact, coined as a term to describe a dystopia, not a utopia. And finally, is economics as a discipline best cut out to help resolve all these questions? Economists tend to see the world through the lens of self-interest and financial incentives, as money is the most easily measurable of our desires. But what, what of our desire for community, for respect, for dignity in our working life, for fairness, our desire to do our duty? Are our pro-social desires to help those around us best characterized as maximizing our own interests? We're lucky to have one of the great economic thinkers and educators on the podcast today, Russ Roberts. Lloyd, before you tell us about Russ, I should mention that we were all ready to have another guest take on the opposing view to Russ, but unfortunately, she came down with COVID overnight. Given the scheduling nightmare that is this podcast, we decided to move ahead with this episode, challenging Russ to be able to present both viewpoints. Russ is such a deep and very human thinker, and we relish the opportunity to have an hour to delve into inequality with him, as well as to take a bit more time to probe the principle of charity itself. Lloyd, tell us more about Russ. Emil, Russ Roberts is the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem and the John and Jean Deneau Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Russ earned his PhD in economics from the University of Chicago and has taught at a number of universities, including the University of California, Los Angeles, as well as Stanford. He is a regular commentator on economic matters for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And interestingly enough, Russ is also the author of three fiction novels, and he has sought to popularize economic ideas like wealth creation and the morality of the marketplace. He's even ventured into the world of rap, Emil, producing blockbuster videos on the giants of economics, such as Keynes and Hayek, and his videos have been viewed by millions. Well, he has a video series called The Numbers Game, which looks at the challenges of measuring economic progress accurately. Russ hosts the podcast Econ Talk, and in his latest book, Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us, Russ dissects the challenge of making big life decisions when there's little analytical evidence to guide us. So let's bring on Russ and let's talk, Emil, about inequality, but as well as his ideas on charity, both from an economics perspective and economists, as well as his own. Well, thank you so much, Russ, for joining us on this podcast. So let's just dive straight into it. What are the arguments for a society that has inequality? How, how does it emerge from a, a market capitalism that has driven so much prosperity? Inequality is a fascinating uh, topic. Uh, it is, of course, in the nature of human beings that we are not the same. We're different in many, many, many dimensions. And in the conversations, the political conversations about equality, what we tend to focus on is material well-being, standard of living, income, wealth, and so on. And so every society in the world today 
is unequal. Uh, some are more equal, unequal than others, and some are more unequal in income, some are un- more unequal in wealth. But inevitably, when people have different endowments, different abilities, different skills, they're not going to end up with the same market outcomes, even in a perfectly competitive, fabulously uh, equal world. And so what we might ask is, should we worry about the equality of the playing field? Should we worry about equality of outcomes? And if we're worried about both of those, which many people are, they're worried about both, we might ask them the question would be, what can we do about that that would make the world a better place? There are many ways to make the world more equal. I think most of us would agree that some are better than others, and some might actually be worse than we might end up in a place that was worse than when we started. And just to sort of follow that line of thought of why a place of equality could be worse, like what what's what are the benefits of a system that does produce inequality? Because the system that we have of uh, market capitalism produces inequality, but it produces a lot of prosperity. If you could just sort of draw that line of causation between a sort of market that harnesses in individual desires and, and endeavors to, to unequal outcomes, because let's just focus on inequality of outcome here. I guess I'd start off with a bad joke, uh, which is not mine. I, yeah. I've never been able to nail down who said it. Some have suggested it's from Mad Magazine. Uh, the joke is that uh, under capitalism, man oppresses man, but under socialism, it's the other way around. <laughs> so you're, you start off by asking me about, is there anything good about the inequality that market capitalism produces uh, as if market capitalism is the system that gives you inequality? But of course, hmm. under the Soviet system of communism, uh, from 1917 to roughly 1989, there was an immense amount of inequality that was produced mm. by a command and control economy. What you're getting at is the point that maybe you had less inequality. I'm not sure that's true under under communism as it was practiced there. But they were also very poor. Mm. So we might not just care about the gap between the top and the bottom. We might also care about the overall level. And similarly, mm. we might worry about the slice of the pie that a particular kind of person might receive from their work, how much income they receive, what's their the percentage of the total pie that belongs to any one person or a group of people. But we also care about how big the pie is, right? So a really equal mm. share of a really small pie could be extremely depressing, and a world we, you and I would not want to live in. And we might be happy with some inequality if we at least thought that the pie would be bigger. The other factor to think about before we get into your question is the pie doesn't stay the same over time. And this is hard to remember. People worry about who gets what at a point in time, but we usually also care about what's possible in the future. So I might have more than you today, but that would be a different world then if I'm always going to have more than you versus maybe later you'll have more than me. We care about whether the haves are a group that never changes. Hmm. Is there movement in and out of that group? Hmm. Say in America, the data I know the, the best, there's a lot of movement in and out of the top and the bottom. People aren't statically defined, assigned to one particular level of well-being, financial well-being, material well-being. They move around. There's a mobility. 
So that complicates things. But the important point, which I think you, your question gets at, is you don't just care about whether people move in and out. You care about the overall well-being of the people in the in the society, and that is not potentially potentially. I want to emphasize that potentially not unrelated to how much inequality we might have as a result of the process yeah. that we have. So, for example, in the United States, uh, roughly, say, between roughly 1900 and and the present, the well-being of the average person, and by that I don't mean the mathematical average, but sort of what we might call the typical median person, sort of person in the middle, has skyrocketed. It's gone up dramatically, which reminds us, possibly in this case, that the world is not zero sum. There are a whole range of things you brought up there, which I'm desperate to come back to um, during, but I want to I give Lloyd the moment here to just uh, look at the alternative, Lloyd. So Russ, thank you. And you know, part of what we are trying to do in this show is to build on the principle of charity, which is to understand the alternative position before rejecting it. And, and we always ask our guests uh, to articulate the other side, the strongest points. You know, when, when I've looked at some of your work and some of your videos, uh, obviously part of the critique of, 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 of the left is the focus on inequality rather than prosperity. What, what do you think the strongest arguments the left would have about why inequality is detrimental to society? What, what are their strongest arguments? Well, I, I think they have a bunch uh, and I'm happy to, let me try to make them. I, I tried to to do so in a series of essays where I conceded that I don't deserve what I have. So I'm, I'm above the average in terms of financial well-being in the world. I'm above the average here in Israel where I live. I was above the average when I was living in uh, the United States. And if you ask me, do I deserve what I have? I would say not really. No, I, I think it's, it, I'd be hard-pressed to make that case. Uh, is it fair that I earn more than the average person? Is it fair that I have a nicer house? Is it fair that I can go on vacation to a better hotel? The answer is, of course, it's not fair. I mean, what, what did I do to deserve it? And the right usually has an argument like, well, I worked hard or I was innovative. I like to think I worked hard. I like to think I was innovative. But the truth is, do I deserve the urge I had to work hard? I mean, I got that from my parents genetically and culturally. It's not like I one day decided, you know, I'm a kind of a lazy person. That's wrong. I'm going to be hardworking. It's not the way the world works. You might want to pretend it is. You might want to feel good about yourself. But the truth is, most of us don't deserve what we have who are successful. And similarly, the people who are poor, they don't deserve what they have. They, they have terrible circumstances. You could argue that they had terrible genetics. You could argue they had terrible culture, upbringing, environment in their home that caused them to be, give them the characteristics. Plus they're unlucky, right? I'm both lucky and gifted genetically and environmentally by the upbringing I had that led me to make a lot of money. And, and not fair. Not by, not, I didn't earn it. I think what we're getting at is what damage does inequality do to society? How does it sort of erode erode the social fabric? Does it, does it have, does it create problems aside from the fact that it's unfair? Polarization, shame. Uh, well, there's, yeah, there's guilt, shame, uh, um, can be on both sides of the, of the distribution. I, I think the, um, I think many of the harms of inequality are 
misleading. I think what we really are often looking at is poverty. They're not the same thing. There's a lot of damage from poverty, horrible. Mm. Uh, but you can have a society where there's a lot of inequality and, and very few poor people in the sense of living near subsistence, mm. in which case I don't think that the, that the damage is very large. Some of it is psychological for sure, but a lot of that psychological damage, I mean, I don't know about you, but if you're walking down the street and you see a really nice car parked there that you can't afford, I'll pick a Maserati. I, that doesn't depress me. Now, if I didn't have a car or couldn't afford a car, it might depress me. But I wouldn't need a Maserati to bring me down. Hmm. But I think a lot of the data on inequality is um, misleading. And one of the reasons I think it's misleading is that most of us cannot tangibly sense the amount of inequality. I know when someone's better off than I am and I walk by them sometimes, uh, either because of their, the car or the house they live in or the neighborhood I drive through. I don't know. Does that really hurt me? Some people find it attractive. They find it something yeah. to aspire to. I've never been sold on those arguments. You were referring to communism uh, a bit earlier. And as an economist, when you look at Marx, not communism, the theory of Marxism and the economic theory of Marxism, what's Marx's strongest points? Well, I think his strongest point is that we don't all have control of our destiny, right? I think the, I think the, the right tends to believe that on average, we are in control of our destiny. It's up to me. I can, in a capitalist system, I can make of myself what I want. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I think that's simply not true. I think that's a romanticization of, of market capitalism that I don't believe in, uh, even though I consider myself a pretty hardcore capitalist. And we can talk about why I still feel that way, even though I don't believe in that story. But uh, the idea that, you know, that people are victims is certainly partially true. Many, many people who, who are at the bottom of the economic ladder are victims. They're not, they're not flawed. It's not their personal failings. It's the, the combination of the way the world works, the incentives they face, the system, what they inherited. And in that sense, I think the left-wing view, Marxist, socialist, communist, they're onto something. It's certainly you know, the vision of, of the socialist ideal that you as another human being I, ha I have no right to more of the of the pie than you do is deeply appealing. Uh, it's certainly the way I run my family. It's the way most people run their families. It's not my observation. I heard a verse from Walter Williams. The family is a socialist ideal. It's top-down, command and control, very egalitarian, highly redistributive. And most of us think it's, it's a great thing. And I think it is in a family. So I don't have any problem with the ideals of, of socialism. And I think it's correct that in the world that we live in, there are many parts of it that are deeply depressing. Either they're unjust, or a better way to say it is they're not just, is what I would say, for sure. Okay. You don't think inequality in and of itself, putting aside poverty, should be an issue? I mean, this is a question I had later, but I'll just ask it now that when I'm thinking about my, my boys when they were younger, I used to do this thought experiment with them. I used to say, which would you prefer? You know, you could have two jelly beans and your brother would have two as well. Or you could have three and your brother would have five. And it was really interesting that they differed in their responses. You know, one of them was more economically rational in a sense. He just wanted more jelly beans. He wanted the three. He didn't care if his brother had five. And the other one really was focused on fairness. And he was really happy to have two as long as his brother didn't have more than him. How do economic models think about those who offer a quality of outcome over that sort of personal gain, interested in what, what you know you want for yourself? 
Well, economics tries to focus on well-being, and well-being doesn't just depend on how much you have. It depends on intangible things as well. Jealousy of your sibling would be could be one of those things, right? Uh, a feeling that that somehow something unjust was taking place can certainly affect your well-being, and that's part of economics, even though we don't usually think of it that way. I would just mention that uh, my brother through much of our lives, uh, earned dramatically more than I did. And I was totally happy for him. He had a nicer house than I did. He had a better salary than I did. Then there was a period where I made a lot more than he did. And I'd say we're back reverse to where he's definitely, his house in uh, Memphis, Tennessee is dramatically larger than my apartment in Jerusalem. And I pay a lot more, for, <laughs> I think, for square foot than, than he does because that's the nature of the marketplace. And mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. I th- I'm very happy he has a big, comfortable house. But many people aren't, Russ. That's quite – I mean, you're very, you're very uh, you know, live and let live. A lot of people find the unfairness of outcome deeply troubling. And it's not normally focused on in economics. I know in a general sense it could Fair be. Enough. But it's not – it doesn't tend to be – you know, governments are not there to ensure that people uh, feel like society is fair. They're there to try to boost GDP per, per head, by and large. By the way, I happen to like my brother, right? <laughs> that, that's relevant. There are plenty of people who make more money than I do, who I resent the source of their income, who have used the system to, to take advantage of it and amass wealth that, that disturb me. I don't mind that Jeff Bezos makes, has a really good life. He has enriched my life tremendously through Amazon. But there are plenty of people who are rich because they've used the system to take advantage of me as a taxpayer or as a citizen. And I I resent that. I don't like it. I think it's a bad thing. I would just say one more thing, and maybe I'll challenge your your worldview. I don't think jealousy or envy is a particularly um, attractive emotion. I may be subject to it despite my best desires and and hopes, but I, I, I think it's I think we should make it clear that even if people are bothered by the fact that some people have more than they do, I don't think it's a particularly good thing. I don't think it's anything we shouldn't be pandering to it. Yeah, yeah, or just encouraging it. The other way of seeing it is fairness, and I was thinking about you know just and unjust equality, or fair and unfair inequality, and that you know if you see Jeff Bezos as having fairly and appropriately gotten his spoils. You can feel good about it and it might even inspire you, but some people might see people who who are wealthy today in society as you know having gotten their spoils unjustly and feel like the game's rigged that the, the the they're buttressed by laws and structures that that keep them on top and others out do you, Do you think people are generally okay with fair inequality and not with unfair but also do you think the game is rigged like just looking more broadly in at the west? Is society and the game rigged and is the inequality based on sort of unfair benefits or on the whole, you feel like it's largely fair with some unfairness on the on the fringes? Well, some of it's decidedly unfair Yeah, in, in, in the sense that that wealth is earned through exploitation or, of rules that, are, that rig the game. Yeah. Some of it is unfair in the sense I alluded to earlier. It mm-hmm. is... Um, there's no inherent justice to my having uh, no skills at basketball and thereby somebody who's taller and more athletic than I am making many, many times more than I do. That's not fair. It just mm. It's a physical reality that has turned out under the current rules of the game 
to lead to a much higher pre-tax income for basketball players in, mm. in most countries. Now we could debate, then we could debate whether th- that should be altered through taxation and other ways. You know, the fact that I'm five foot six is a handicap, I, but I don't look at tall people and go, oh, that's horrible. I just, it's just part of life. I got many other gifts. Now you could argue there are people who have no gifts. They're short and they don't have anything else. <laughs> so those mm. are the people we, we, we obviously might care about, want to help in all kinds of ways. Uh, some of those financial, some of them emotional, spiritual, and so on. Well, my question is, is is the game rigged? Oh, yeah. And of course it is. Yeah, of course it's rigged. I want to, <laughs> But it's here's the point that I, that I would emphasize. Of course it's rigged in the sense that there are many decisions made by public policy, by government, and inherent in some of the economic system that allows some people to get ahead of others. Yeah. What I'm really worried about more than that is whether as a result of those rules and as a result of that system, no one is able to rise except yeah. those who have already risen. I don't think that's true. It doesn't change the issue. Is it less true than it used to be or there's as much social mobility as there should be? Should you know Where is social that's, mobility now? It's a very hard question uh, to answer. It's very easy to answer badly. Uh, there, there's a lot of people would argue there's much less social mobility than there used to be in the West. Mm. I don't know if that's true. Here's what I do think I know, which is there's no excuse for a publicly run school system to do a horrible job. Mm. And many do. M- many mm. public school systems, which are where the less well-off or have no option except to attend mm. those public schools, they get a very bad start in life because they have bad education. So, you know, we could debate whether the average person in the top 1% earned their well, their, their good, their goodies. Some, some did perhaps in the sense that they earned them by at least the current rules of the game. Other people wrote the rules of the game to advantage themselves. Those people we, I think we all agree are both, unattractive and should be stopped. Uh, then, the, yeah. But the other question is, which is not unrelated, and I think it's quite important and easily forgotten, what I really want to make sure is that the people at the bottom have as much of a chance to fulfill their potential as human beings as anyone else. That is not the case in many, if not most, if not all societies. Because mm. to start with, they have a very bad educational endowment. They're given very bad schooling. So I would want to start with that. That that would be my most uh, important thing to- That's a quality of opportunity, isn't it? That's what we're talking correct. about there. Correct. Yeah. But it's more than a quality of opportunity. I, want, I just want to emphasize this. It's not just, oh, poor people deserve good schooling so they can make a decent living. That's part of it. But it's much more than that. It's that poor people- should have good schooling so they can realize their potential. It's not just about the mm. money. It's about mm. dignity, pride, autonomy, mm. and self-respect. Mm. And those things, I think, are that's the worst kind of inequality, by the way, in many cases in the West, where people, sure, they make a decent living by the standards of, say, 100 years ago, not more than decent, but they can't achieve fulfillment. They're not connected. They don't feel they've gotten a chance to be who they should be. You know, it is the the meritocratic dystopia. You know, as I understand it, meritocracy was coined as a term to describe a dystopia, that those with talents happen 
that society happens to value at the time end up with the lion's share of wealth and esteem as well as you're saying, not just wealth, but sort of dignity and and status. And those who don't are told that they're worthless. And it's, you know, Hillary Clinton famously used that term deplorables. But that can't be solved just with redistribution. I mean, and, and a lot of it is driven populism, hasn't it? The sort of rise of populism. Do, do you think economics is a helpful lens to understand people's need for dignity of work, for agency, for the ability to contribute, just rather than just sort of redistribution and welfare? I mean, I do not. Sounds like your your worldview does, <laughs> but do you think mainstream economics is, is a helpful lens? It does mm. not. And it, I think it's a terrible problem with, with my profession of yeah. economics. Economics focuses on what can be measured. Yeah. Uh, I like to say that dignity is not in the data set. Yeah. Uh, so they're not, sometimes they're not unrelated. There are relationships between dignity and things that can be measured. For example, having a job. So if we're worried yeah. about international trade and we're worried about the impact of trade on people's ability to find meaningful work, then it's a relevant question. We could substitute dignity for finding meaningful work in a lot of of parts of America that have, quote, been left behind, meaning haven't risen overall as as much as the average uh, piece of the economy has, average parts of the country. Those places tend to have people who are in despair, have lack of dignity, can't find meaningful work, can't find work that allows them to support a family uh, or sometimes even themselves. And I'm suggesting, in that case, there's an overlap. But, but, but often we forget that what we really care about isn't how much stuff we have, but whether our life feels meaningful or satisfied or, or whether we feel contented. And that mm. requires a whole different range of things that economics used to care about. Adam Smith wrote about it famously uh, in the book that people don't know, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And The Theory of Moral Sentiments which you've written about, just as a as a plug for your book here. Thank you, appreciate about. it. But that book, written by the quote father of capitalism or the father of e- grandfather of economics, or if you want to call Adam Smith, his other book, his famous book, is the Wealth of Nations. But his other book, mm. the Theory of Moral Sentiments, is about how important the non monetary aspects of life are, and unfortunately, that has been abandoned by most of economics because it can't be measured. You can't get a do a statistical analysis on self-fulfillment, uh, and therefore it gets ignored. And I think that's a tragedy. Can I just go back to some basics here, Russ, in terms of how sure. we define inequality? Um, yeah. You know, the world in some ways is vastly less unequal now um, than it used to be if you look at, if you include Asia and the rise of China over, over, over many decades um, but wealthy countries are more unequal, but it depends if you're looking at the middle income tranche or the lower tranche. You look at the 0.1%, the 1%, the top 10%. Poverty definition, as I understand it, is defined as those below a certain percentage of the median wage. So that's sort of quasi a measure of inequality itself. But how do you think we should best think about and measure inequality? And do we get in danger of defining it in the way that suits our particular ideology or worldview? Well, certainly, if you if you go into the kitchen uh, where these numbers are cooked and baked, there there are choices people make that are often biased, mm. fulfill their prejudices, mm. their a priori views, and so on, or their policy goals. Uh, but I think what you basically said, I think you get at the essence of it, which mm. is the entire world is more equal than it was a hundred years ago. Mm. That is, the the poorest people at on the in the bottom 
the gap between them and the people at the top has has in many ways gotten smaller. Certainly, absolute poverty has been reduced dramatically over the last hundred years, yeah. and I would say it's mainly through uh, market forces and capitalism, yeah. uh, not through government redistribution. So that's the quote good news if you care about inequality. The bad news is is that within a country, there's often less equality. There's more inequality within, say, the United States or uh, France or England or wherever, or Australia. Uh, but I'm not sure that's what we ought to be focused on. I mean, I, I would be focused on, as we alluded to earlier, I would be focused on making sure that the people at the top didn't earn their money in destructive and uh, dishonest ways. And I would try to make sure that the people at the bottom had as much possibility of rising as was uh, possible. When you have a dynamic economy and there's a lot of innovation going on, you are going to see lots of people shooting up to the top very, very high, doing very, very well. They might not stay there. What you don't want to do, I, I don't think, is I don't want, I don't think you want to reduce the potential for innovation. You want to, you want to make sure that there's a chance for the average well-being to rise. And and then you can decide, well, but we should do some redistribution after the fact. And that, that's a legitimate, open for discussion, philosophical yeah, and question. We've talked about redistribution and whether that does satisfy people's sense of dignity or, you know, is, 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 does a bank account equal dignity? Does does money capture all the things that we value, which which obviously it doesn't entirely, but it does in part. I mean, can I, can I look with you just at this sort of economic man, homo economicus, and some of the limitations of this way of seeing things that, as I understand it, the, the, the mainstream economics sees humans as essentially self-interested. We're looking at incentives, but also in a way sort of lazy, in need of incentives to do anything. And even our desire to help others is seen within the lens of utility maximization. If we, if we like helping others, that's a way of maximizing what, what we enjoy. I mean, Paul Collier describes it as a sort of sociopathic model of an individual. And, and because, as you said, money, uh, math, mathematical models is, are so important, they tend to focus on financial incentives as money as, our, as, as the goal rather than all those harder things to qualify and quantify like respect, community, esteem, satisfaction. Are, are there other models that could recognize more easily our pro-social natures, Russ, our desire to live in community, models where our bonds and mutual obligations, not just our rights and merit, are part of what makes us successful as a society and individuals. And under that different way of looking at it, maybe equality might flow more naturally rather than being seen as a trade-off for freedom and things like that. I give. Uh, I try to give 10% of my uh, after-tax income to charity. Yeah. It doesn't always feel good. Yeah. It doesn't always feel yeah. good. I, I don't do that because... Um, it floats my boat. I do it because I think I'm obligated to as a religious Jew. Now, you could say, well, that's what floats your boat, you know, fulfilling that. Yeah. And I think there's some truth to that, right? You can always squeeze all of human behavior into self-interest if you work hard enough at it. But the but the point you're making, which I think is the is yeah. the is the is the right one, is that economics is methodologically it, met- it struggles methodologically to take into account some of the deepest things we care about as human beings. Uh, our, our feeling of belonging, our feeling of being part of a community. And certainly, as you suggest, 
when we feel those things, which are part of our nature, along with our narrowest self-interested thoughts, when we feel those things, sharing is a natural thing. It's not something imposed on the top down. And that's why in the family, it's so powerful, right? In the family, I don't go, uh, I better pass a law that I've got to divide up the dinner tonight, give everybody an equal amount. It's what I want to do. It's not, it emerges culturally through love, through a hundred norms, et cetera. Having said that, the kibbutz, which is the a, a larger scale family, but short of a socialist uh, national enterprise, the kibbutz has struggled to get a foothold in the 20th century, 21st century. It didn't, it had a heyday. Most people struggle with that level of equality. Well, the kibbutz was an extreme, an extreme, wasn't it? Right. No matter how much you work, no matter how hard you work, no matter how clever you are, your room, your clothes are the same as everybody else's. I know you do have a distrust of government and and have more of a trust, let's say, of the markets to to sort of sort out the bundle of uh, contradictory needs of individuals. But I was reading the economist Mariana Mazzucato's uh, book, which argues that that rather than just value creation, there's been so much value extraction from the markets, particularly in the financial sector where people have earned you know, vast sums, seemingly creating little of value for society. Do you think we've gone too far with our distrust for governments? And should governments be more proactive in deciding what activities are actually of value rather than just financially remunerative? Well, financing is a whole special case. We could talk for a long time about it. Just go to the basic question of distrust of government. And of value, value, you know, value creation and extraction versus just the markets, you know, through their their magic, you know, moving us to towards value and away from uh, unvaluable things. Well, I, I would just say that I think there is a, a reason that the financial sector has been apparently appears to be so extractive. It's not totally extractive, by the way. You know, there are plenty of, if you've ever lived in a country or read about a country that has a poor financial system, you know how important a, a, an effective financial system is in allocating capital and transferring resources from the present to the future. Uh, modern capitalist countries do that very well. And then they do some other things that are not so attractive, mischievous. Um, and I do think government is the part of the reason for that. It's not just the nature of the people in the business at all. But I, I think there's an important footnote to put to that, which is all that, which is that I don't know a country in the developed world. I'm not trying to know a country in anywhere in the world where government's gotten smaller over the last 20 years. Uh, certainly in the West, you can you could argue about you know the former Soviet Union, but cer- certainly, which is more than 20 years now. But if you think about the West, if you think about Australia, United States, France, Germany, Scandinavia, England, Italy, et cetera. Uh, Israel's a little bit different. I mean, I guess you could argue Israel's gotten a little bit smaller in terms of the size of It's a of bit of a myth, is it? It's a sort of narrative myth that governments have gotten smaller and we've given or that there's more. Maybe there's more, skeptic, maybe there's more skepticism of government. I don't see it translating into smaller government. You yeah, know, it'd be one thing if we're like, we're constantly seesawing back and forth between laissez-faire capitalism and, and heavy-handed government regulation, we just kind of move mostly in one direction. Every once in a while, there's some deregulation of certain sectors, but the overall size of government taxation, the proportion of 
of the of the national product that gets allocated by political methods rather than the marketplace. In the United States, for example, which has this great tradition of of individualism and libertarianism, supposedly, government just gets bigger. I don't think that's our biggest problem. A lot of people think it is. I think it's something of a straw man mm. or woman. Mm. I've been thinking about tax rates and just wondering in reality, are people actually incentivized to work harder if income tax rates decline and to work less if they go up? Like how high do tax rates need to go before we start meaningfully reducing the drive to work and therefore economic growth? When we've talked about how motivation, it's not largely or certainly not only about financial rewards. Would you work less hard if income tax rates went up by 10%? Well, 10%, probably not, but 60, 50, 80% increase (laughs) to, to higher rates, those are percentage increases, not the rates themselves. But if you start to get to those levels of of high rates, you you do start to see some discouragement. If every dollar I earn, I only get to keep 10 cents or 20 cents or 30 cents, I I might not be so eager to earn another dollar. That's Mm. the argument that economists typically make against high Mm. high tax rates. The real problem I have is that I, I don't know of a society at the national level in the modern times where government spent most of its money gathered from taxes on helping poor people. Uh, mm. there's, it's a very mm. small part, partly because political power is also unequally distributed. Uh, mm. And rich people do sometimes care about the poor. They're happy to have some uh, redistribution. But if you look at what the government typically spends its money on, again, I know the United States better than other countries, but for a long time, defense was important. It's less so now, which is which is good. Uh, but a lot of what government does is to help make rich people richer. Pick a few examples, agricultural subsidies, educational subsidies, which look like mm-hmm. they're helping the poor actually mostly benefit the rich. They're the kids. There's It's their kids who go on to college, who finish college, not poor kids. It's nice that there's some state universities for those people, say, in the United States that are subsidized. But even at state universities that have very low tuition rates in the United States, most of the people go or above average um, most of the benefits that mm. go to the to mm. rich, not to the poor. Mm. So I don't really have a lot of faith in government to um, to spend my money well. I don't want government to be bigger. In general, that tends to lead people to try to steer that money toward themselves, what economists call rent-seeking. So I, I think you have to be somewhat pessimistic yeah. about the ability of government action in, in the real world we live in to solve these problems. And one might who cares about these issues look for other ways to help the least well-off among us. The conversation with Russ will continue next week when Lloyd pushes Russ to explore whether economists engage in tribe behavior and how they can recognize their blind spots. We all struggle with hubris, with overconfidence, with confirmation bias. Uh, I know I do. I think it's a human problem. It's a great question. See you there. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.